Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, Live Talk of Pituitary World News. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. And uh, I hope that your summer is off to a good start and you're enjoying the, uh, the warm weather. Uh, finding something fun to do. Uh, I'm pleased today to have uh, Dr. Tamara Wexler join me uh, and to talk about a number of things, uh, including traumatic brain injury and hypopituitarism, her practice, some of her research interests, etc. So Tamara, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. I really appreciate your, uh, your inviting me and giving me this opportunity to, to talk about something that I, I love talking about and I think we need more awareness of. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. So uh, I've known you for a number of years. I'm familiar with your background, and I, I would appreciate if you would share with the audience who you are, you know, beginning with your uh, maybe your uh, medical school uh, training. Sure. No, it's a pleasure. I um, it's I, I I was very grateful to rather fall into medical school. My my plan was to go into academics and be a professor. It's rather my family business, academics and government. And I was planning to do a, a PhD, but um, but ended up applying to MD PhD programs. And from day one was was really um, it was clearly a great fit for me. I loved hearing about um, I'd always been interested in health, but I loved hearing about people's stories. It was like a window into their lives. It just it, it was uh, clearly clearly something that I, I was meant to have done. Um, my I, I got interested very early on in neuroendocrinology, um, thanks to a wonderful um, professor, uh, an endocrinologist, Francis Sterling in, in Pennsylvania, who not only gave us fantastic lectures about feedback loops and um, but also I used to sneak out and go over to uh, to his office in the VA and he would see patients, I think pro bono at the time and remember the first patient who walked into his office and he said, shake his hand. And he asked me what the diagnosis was. And uh, it was that kind of the feeling of sinking into a hand. It was a patient with acromegaly. Um, so I like to mention him whenever I can. Um, he, uh, and so I was interested in neuroendocrine from a, from a very early stage and my PhD was in neuroscience and I was really lucky. I got to pick my own topic. So pick something in neuroendocrinology took probably an extra year, maybe a little more to finish the PhD for that reason, to start up a new project. Um, and it was very basic research um, the, it, involving olfactory nerves and GnRH, which was Kalman's syndrome uh, and, and the pathogenesis of it. That's, um, some, of my, that's some of my favorite uh, embryogenesis stories with Kalman's and, and those uh, neurons and their migration. Yeah, and, uh, yes. It was, I, was, I love that yeah. stuff. It's really cool. I was, we'll have to talk about that. That yeah. more another time. It's um, yeah. It was it was uh, and, and actually I got to use one of the images from my thesis recently in something talking about the olfactory pathway and getting mm -hmm. to the hypothalamus with, with long collar as a possible entry point. Yeah, also for that's a bit. that's um, true. I even say the same. That's probably what's going on. I had a patient contact me recently that his wife has chronic uh, uh, sort of I don't remember the term, but just. Not anosmia, not hyposmia, but sort of a hyperosmia and smell of garbage and things like that when she's eating, mm -hmm. mostly in the afternoons. And, it, and it's all related to this stuff, right, that you became an expert in. Yeah, well, yeah. At, 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 at least in... in the chicken model at the time. And then, and then, ah. the, and then the, and then the mouse <laughs> model was what I was working on, yeah. but no, I, I, I really loved it. It was neuroscience. It was um, neuroendocrine um, and development, but I was really interested in, in, um, you know, I was looking at animal models and I really wanted to use the human model. So when I went right. on afterwards to my residency and fellowship, I quite deliberately picked a place that, that focused on um, clinical research also. Uh, which was Mass General. So I did my internal medicine residency there and then my endocrine fellowship there. And the endocrine um, fellowship program at Mass General is um, large enough that at, at that time, at least, you 
picked one of seven different areas to focus on. So I started my focus on neuroendocrine and, and reproductive endocrine for as long as I could, the reproductive endocrine at, at that point. Um, and, uh, and we also got to do pediatric endocrinology, I should mention, which was really helpful because I, I see adolescents now also, but to kind of, you know, even though I'm an adult uh, internist, an adult endocrinologist, to get to see that was really helpful. Um, and so my research there actually focused on growth hormone, uh, largely excess and deficiency, um, uh, and uh, and it was great. I, I stayed on at Mass General, um, attending an internal medicine and seeing patients in endocrine, um, but it became vacation and weekend time because I spent some time mm-hmm. at McKinsey, the, the consulting company. Um, I had. I had never expected to do that. I really, all I wanted to do was sort of teach and see patients, loved being in academics. Um, but I also wanted to have a broader impact, you know, as I, I, I was arrogant enough to want to have an impact on a broader, you know, group of the population than my patients who, um, that I was seeing then, the, the study patients. And so I went hoping to do uh, public health research and public service through government and got to do that, but also worked across the healthcare field um, industry, which was great. It was really interesting and, um, and got to you know, have insights into a lot of different things having to do with um, endocrine topics as well as, as, as many others. Um, I left because I missed seeing patients. You know, I was spending my vacations seeing patients and teaching and my, my weekends for the first few years. But it, it, you know, I'd always wanted to have my own patients that I followed over time. And I'd even looked into doing that on Saturdays if I could, but I was traveling so much that I wasn't ever you know, and in one place on a Saturday. So I eventually rolled off from McKinsey. I still do some consulting, including back to them, um, and ended up uh, being offered the opportunity to build and then direct a pituitary center at NYU. And I really had a dream of of building a pituitary center. So that was, that was great. And I I did that until I moved to help my parents. I still do research there, but, um, but see patients separately. And the, continue to, I guess, to do all sorts of the, you know, research and education, seeing patients, a little bit of consulting, which is, um, which has been nice to, to get, to keep that up. The, the, it's interesting. My research there is all in post-brain injury pituitary mm-hmm. um, deficiencies out of NYU. And so my position there is in rehab medicine now, actually, because of the type of work I've oh, been doing. So it's a little, yeah. Well, you're one of the rare birds that uh, is a true neuroendocrinologist. You know, I do neuroendocrinology, consider myself a neuroendocrinologist, but I didn't do the basic science research to, at the start of my career. So it's it's fascinating that you've linked that love and that interest with the uh, clinical practice of medicine. Uh-huh. It's, um, I well, clearly it's not necessary, you know, as uh, to have right. done the basic research as evidenced by, by someone such as yourself. But um, yeah, I actually uh, asked, I requested to do, stay longer in clinical medicine and do more of my rotations before I did the PhD. So I'd hoped that I'd see a patient who would kind of spark an interest and I'd get to go, uh, go off and do my research on that. And honestly, in fact, it was the reverse happened a little bit too, because all of the research was neuroendocrine and that just kind of enriched my interest in seeing those patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. So I have to ask this question. Um, not that there's not politics in medicine, uh, but what did your family think when you sort of chose a different path than uh, everybody else, it sounds like? You mean when I went to McKinsey? No, when you went to medicine instead of oh, the the academic politics, of yeah. So. Um, no, the, um, the my my family was perfectly happy that I was doing uh, medicine. Also, there was no. I think that they had always thought I might go to. Med- I mean, I was medical school. Quite honestly, like I uh-huh. have a. I've been going through some of the things from my parents' house, and there's a book called "Germs Make Me Sick" that I read when I was a kid, and apparently uh-huh. diagnosed my mother's pneumonia when you know. When I you know ba- based on what it was, walking pneumonia, mycoplasm. Uh, yeah. uh, so I was always interested in it. And I think I just hadn't thought about it. I was a little bit, quite honestly, avoidant of the pre-med culture in, in undergraduate. And, but I took all those classes because I yeah. was, a, I was chemistry and international relations. So I, I took the classes, but, um, and so that probably led me to stay a little bit further back. And I applied after college. I applied after oh, I graduated okay. to graduate Interesting. school. Yeah, well, I think avoiding that pre-med culture with all due respect to pre-med students is probably a worthwhile thing to do. So yeah, yeah. Find, find your own pathway to medical school, right? Who needs that? Yeah, so. 
Yes. So, yeah. so that, that, that might have, that might have been part of it, but no, that's a good question. I thought you were asking about the McKinsey because that I did feel a little bit like a black sheep until I realized how oh, much it really enriched things. And like, it was, um, was helpful. Well, you were, you were in a leadership role there, I think, right. As a consultant endocrinologist or. Well, so it was two things. You go in as though you'd been to business school if you have a previous degree, but I, I did, I did serve as their global endocrine lead, but that was just mm -hmm. touching projects where they had questions. I went through the regular consulting position and, you know, when I left, I was an engagement manager and so running projects, but mm -hmm. I didn't, you know, I, I, you leapfrog somewhat because I had done mm -hmm. graduate school, but, but not more than that. Mm -hmm. Started at the bottom. Yeah. yeah. So at the present time, uh, you're doing a lot of telemedicine, I understand. So what do you what do you think about that approach to patient care? It has changed my view on it, right? So if I, I had been asked in the past about telemedicine far before the pandemic. And I thought, remember thinking, you know, there's no substitute for sitting in front of someone and, um, uh, you know, being with them as they explain what they've been through, getting to observe them. Sometimes they bring family members in. Um, and, uh, and while I still think that that is absolutely the case, I started to think that it's almost more for me. I like being in person with patients, but it's been far more, not just possible, but useful to see patients by telemedicine. I mean, one, I can reach patients who don't have access to neuroendocrinologists or endocrinologists. Um, and, and two, uh, well, this is something you mentioned to me and made me really think of actually, uh, was you about how you get to see into patients' homes, a little window into their life that you don't otherwise see. Mm -hmm. So right. you get to see them in sort of a place that they're comfortable with uh, pets, people they interact with. Um, so that part's also really nice. So I, I don't think it's a substitute. I, I, I've been doing I only telemedicine in, in, during the pandemic and I'm going to add back in the in-person. And I think that there's probably a... a happy medium where you see a patient, you know, initially and once in a while in person, mm -hmm. uh, more if they, if they prefer it, obviously, but for those right. who don't, that, that there's not really a substitute, but that a lot can be done by telemedicine, including, you know, basic neuro exams and things like that. Yeah. It's a good check-in as well for patients who have had labs to assess a, say a response initiation, a growth hormone or thyroid hormone or whatever to look at the lab, check in, how are you feeling? The level looks okay. Or maybe I'd like to make an adjustment. I want to make sure there are no side effects, et cetera. Yeah. So I like it for that too. Many of our patients live hours and hours away. And I, or before the pandemic, I was doing about 15% of my practice was telemedicine. And really? oh, one of my, great. one of my first patients was a lady that lived about seven hours away in California. And uh, she said, uh, Hey, this is great. You saved me two days off of work, two seven-hour drives, a night in a hotel, gasoline expenses, and childcare yep. uh, to do my 15-minute follow-up for my prolactinoma via telemedicine instead of me coming to San Francisco. Yeah. So I yeah, like that we can, we can do that because we keep people uh, in their jobs with their families. They don't uh, have to take the day off. They don't have to travel. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And, you know, for all sorts of reasons, it can be hard for patients to get it, especially, you know, I have some patients who it is, it, it's quite an, an effort and takes a lot out of them to leave the house um, physically or for other reasons. And so they, they don't have to, it, you know, there, there's not that barrier to, to coming in to, to see someone because they can just do it from home. People who maybe aren't as mobile or people who have had traumatic brain injuries and have had other, other injuries that, that, uh, that make it more difficult to, to get into an office. Yeah, I too enjoy that physical contact with patients and the ability to see them engage their responses to what I'm trying to say in person, but love that that view into their lives, uh, whether they be at work or home or in their cars or whatever. One of the other reasons that I'm I'm continuing with a lot of telemedicine is we're having another surge in California. I don't know what it's like back east, but uh, yes. lots of people are just getting sick, and some of them very sick, even though they've had uh, two vaccines, two boosters, and some even COVID before. They're getting yeah. really sick with this BA5 variant right now. So I, I, I feel like doing telemedicine helps people avoid coming to this area, mixing and mingling with people in a, in a hospital setting where we have sick patients. So. No, I, I agree. One of the things I learned during the pandemic was that, you know, it's possible to get, uh, so, so in order to do telemedicine, I don't know if all the people listening are with this, but you have to have a license, not just in the state where you are, but a license in the state where the patient is at the time, as well as 
making sure that that's okay with your insurance and everything. So um, I had a patient who wanted to travel from Idaho to Virginia and it was the you know height of the pandemic. And I was like, I really don't think that's safe. And I was able to get a limited license during the pandemic in Idaho. So she didn't have to travel. I mean, I just felt like that would be a really bad idea at the time. This is the early months um, yeah. to, to travel. One of my neighbors, uh, he's a retired physicist and he's very savvy. And he, he and I were talking about this issue and he, he, he put it simply that uh, the pandemic forced us to leap ahead 15 to 20 years in our use of some forms of technology. And one of them was in the form of telemedicine, because I think he does telemedicine with his, his healthcare providers. And he said he felt like a mistake would be to try to go back to the way life was three years ago before the pandemic. And some of the things are good. We need to keep them and yeah. telemedicine being one of those. And uh, there are plenty of others as well. Uh, like I agree. Out, it's... Outdoor dining and restaurants and this, you know, I love that sort of the European way. So. Yeah, I, I agree on, on both counts, in fact. And um, I don't think I would have tried telemedicine if it weren't for the pandemic it kind of forced me to, to see the, the benefits and, and that a lot more was possible. And especially with specialties, it, it is not that you it, there's it's, it's not that it's not better to do a, a physical exam in person um, or a history in person, but but where it's, you know, the so-called cognitive specialties where you're putting together pieces based on what a patient tells you and what they say and what you're interpreting as well from, from labs. So it, it definitely is far more useful and possible than I would have previously thought. Yeah. It's, you know, fortunately we don't have to check a pulse and listen to cardiac valves, but it's surprising the number of goiters that I see on video that I wish I could get my hands on. <laughs> so I have so. actually that it's, it's funny that the only times I've sent someone, and uh, this was earlier again in the pandemic, but to see someone local um, were because I noticed something in the thyroid uh, action. I was like, please go get the, you know, go to, I'd like find another endocrinologist in the area that could do a thyroid exam. Cause it doesn't mean they need an ultrasound. They need an exam. And so exactly. that's happened a, a handful of times. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So um, tell us about the, um, I should say, the things that led to your interest to, in uh, the assessment of pituitary function in patients with traumatic brain injury. What, how did you find your way down that path? That began with a patient. And I'll mention, you know, um, so I, it, this was 2015. I just started my position at NYU and a patient was sent to me from the chair of rehab medicine at NYU um, for, for an evaluation for, now I'm not, I, th I think it was low testosterone. I'm not sure based on symptoms, but the patient also had symptoms of growth hormone deficiency. And I remembered back from um, fellowship uh, seeing all these patients that uh, there's a finite list. So I, I, let, let me take a step back for a second. To prescribe growth hormone replacement to someone with clearly defined deficiency, the patient not only has, adult patients not only have to have deficiency, but to have a recognized etiology um, uh, on one of a finite list. And traumatic brain injury was always top of that list. Um, and yet I'd not, not much attention had been, had been paid to that. You know, we largely were seeing patients with pituitary tumors or, um, or cranial radiation. Um, and so this was a patient with traumatic brain injury and the same symptoms. And so after, and, and who indeed turned out to have deficiencies, but I started looking into it and it, it, um, it, I just found it so interesting. I mean, here was a concussion is a huge traumatic brain injury is different, you know, even mild, including mild concussions are a huge public health issue. And that had been recognized but the fact that there was this component of it that could be replaced and addressed and therefore symptoms from that deficiency could potentially be reversed was really exciting to me, you know, to get to have this public health impact and to work in pituitary um, kind of brought everything together and, uh, you know, neuroscience as well. Um, so uh, I got really interested, literally that from that moment, just started um, reading about it, wrote something up, sent it around to colleagues in the um, neurology and concussion medicine got a group together to start talking about it and uh, and thinking about it and um, it 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 just went from there. Yeah, now you're a recognized expert in the field, so we appreciate your interest and in your contributions uh, in that area. So um, when I was in my fellowship, we were taught that patients had to have a basilar skull fracture to be 
sort of qualified for a workup for hypopituitarism, but we now know that that's not the case and that uh, many patients who've had a simple concussion or sports injuries or fallen off a ladder or what have you have, uh, have uh, hypopituitarism, growth hormone deficiency being the most common. What's your understanding of the proportion of patients who are affected by this uh, particular condition? Um, the, the, way to, uh, the way I'm going to answer that comes from first from the literature, right? Published studies. And I mention that because it's important when you read a study, not, I, I don't just look at the percent they state, right? Because what's reported in the literature is anywhere from 15 to 65% of people chronically, so at least three months after an injury, have an anterior pituitary deficiencies. When you start to look at, at the studies more closely, they, they, one, study different groups of population of patients. So some might have to have symptoms, some might have to be inpatients at a rehab facility, some might have to have had a, a you know, neuro ICU stay after the injury. Um, and they also use different... Uh, definitions for deficiencies and different tests. So when you pare that all down and you look across the board, the median is around 35, 30%, sorry, but it's going to be 25 to 30%, 30% um, uh, of adults. Uh, and again, I, th- I, don't, I don't think that that necessarily is true if you look at everybody who's ever had a concussion, that's the populations that were in the studies. So, so that's what's reported. And, um, and I would say that of the patients I've tested, it's probably around 25%. It's probably similar, 25, 30%. So um, it depends whom you test. And, uh, and I usually use symptoms as, as my gauge for whom I would test. Yeah, certainly a large proportion of that uh, group of people who have had a head injury certainly need to be tested. And uh, what uh, type of, are you doing any research right now in the arena? Yeah, um, some of it is, is observational and some of it is participating in, in trials. So um, two different streams of research. One is just better characterizing and understanding both, not just the deficiencies that we now know occur at a higher rate after concussions. And I'm speaking of anterior pituitary hormone deficiencies. Happy to explain what I, what I mean by that, if that's helpful. Um, uh, but also um, how, how things can change with replacement. And then the separate stream that I've been focused on is whether, um, whether the same thing happens after COVID for some patients. So the patients with long hauler mm-hmm. symptoms and um, what's called neuro uh, PASC symptoms or post-acute sequelae of COVID, basically long hauler symptoms like mm-hmm. brain fog mm-hmm. and fatigue. Um, could deficiencies such as growth hormone and other pituitary deficiencies be contributing to that? There's a lot of reason to think so. And, um, and if so, then can replacement help reverse aspects of that? So that's what I've been really excited about for the past year. And um, there's some some ongoing research out of UTMB, and I have some cases I'm, I'm following as well that, that I'm working on with the <clears> UTMB <throat> group. So that, that I'm really excited about because it's an opportunity to really help, and, uh, I think. Yeah. So the U- University of Texas uh, Medical Branch Galveston is what you're referring yes, to, Yes, right? yes. Yeah, this one. I want to make sure people knew that. Yeah, they Thank do you. some interesting work with uh, traumatic brain injury in that uh, in that group. Yeah. So that, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so especially the, please. Yeah. The gut biome. I think they're very interested in the changes there after brain injury. Yes. It's and fascinating so, stuff. And whether and how that relates to growth hormone deficiency and, um, and, uh, and so the, the same type of research that, that is, has been done there for traumatic brain injury is being looked at now after for patients with long hauler, um, several other universities that where I'm looking at it also, but I, I think I'm, I'm excited to find, you know, to find out whether there's another opportunity to help, basically, a mm-hmm. sadly large and growing patient population. Uh, interesting. So as we were discussing before, during my fellowship at Hopkins uh, in 1990 to 1993, we talked about the fact that people who have traumatic brain injury, really, the, the ones you checked pituitary function in were those who had basilar skull fracture. So these were people that had really hard hits. And if they were lucky enough to survive, many of them would have uh, growth hormone and other pituitary hormone deficiencies. In fact, at the time, we didn't care about growth hormone deficiency, right? 1990, 1993, we started caring about that in the, in the later 1990s, uh, but certainly for hypopituitarism. But now we understand that hypopituitarism and growth hormone deficiency after head trauma is an entirely different landscape. Uh, and uh, the proportion, uh, what, what's the proportion of hypopituitarism in someone, say, with a concussion? What do the studies show? Uh, so it, it's a good question, and, and it's, it's been really interesting following the um, 
evolution of looking at, you know, just, just the most severe patients to looking at even milder patients. So if you look across the rates we know are from studies. And so I, I say that on purpose because what we know are rates in the patient study. So it's not the entire population, but the range is anywhere um, for pituitary deficiencies, anywhere from 15 to 65%. If you look across all the studies and you really look carefully at how are they diagnosing them and is this, you know, is, is it deficiencies and not just dysfunction, you end up with a median of around 25 to 30% of patients with all types of concussion in the studies. Um, and and I mentioned that again, because you know, someone has to have a reason to be studied, whether it's a particular symptom or a particular, you know, they were studied at a particular center. Um, but, uh, but I mean, the, I believe there's just been one study done of the general population. You want to compare it to the average adult, what's their risk of a pituitary deficiency. And that was, you know, 0.04%. It was much less the, the prevalence. It was, there's done in a right. region in Northwestern Spain, I think. And they took, um, you know, adults 18 and up and, and it was just starkly different um, prevalence. Yeah. And those probably are underestimates, I would guess, as you said, not everyone's getting tested. They have to have symptoms and signs. And many people in, in my practice who have, say, bona fide pituitary disease, they simply gain weight over time and, you know, tired and fatigued. They ascribe it to aging. So I wonder how many people out there with traumatic brain injury or history thereof have growth hormone deficiency and are, and are ascribing their changes in the health due to aging. Yeah, no, that's an, that's an excellent um, point. I think there's many reasons it can be underestimated. And I think I misspoke. That's 0.4% in the general population. A percent 0.4% was the, the, the prevalence. Uh, it was four out of a hundred thousand, but the, um, not just that. I mean, for a long time, we used for specifically for growth hormone deficiency, we used um, IGF-1 as a screen. So growth hormones made by the pituitary, um, as you know, sort of secreted in a pulsatile fashion. So at any time of day, it could be a little bit higher, or a little bit lower, but um, it causes the liver to make IGF-1 and that's that's more stable. And so that's what is often measured to monitor it. And it used to be thought that if your IGF-1 was within the normal range for your for your age and 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 uh, and gender, that you were fine, and then it's become increasingly clear that recognized back to the 2000s at least, but increasingly uh, clear that you can have a normal IGF-1 and fail what are considered to be likely better tests for growth hormone deficiency, the provocative test where you try to get the body to make growth hormone and you see if it can respond. Um, and so I think that a lot of places um, may still just stop with the IGF-1, and that will miss patients as well. Plus the fact that especially after traumatic brain injury. The symptoms of growth hormone and other pituitary deficiencies um, overlap to such a great degree with other types of symptoms you can get from the traumatic brain injury or, or you know, being tired or, you know, all sorts of mm -hmm. things that they may be, um, they may be dismissed as, as being indicative of something else. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the unfortunate thing about growth hormone deficiency is the symptoms and signs, as you're alluding to, are very nonspecific. Yeah. Uh, but they seem to fit in patients who have a history of pituitary disease or head trauma. We can we can hear the patient talk. We know their thyroid hormone doses and their, gonad uh, their gonadal steroids are fine. And they're, maybe if they're on hydrocortisone or some other steroid, that dose is fine. But they still have these ongoing symptoms and signs. And we recognize that as the syndrome. But if someone walked in off the street with no known history of pituitary disorder with the same symptoms and signs, it might be the last thing a physician would ever think about. Exactly. If someone says that they're tired and they feel kind of like they're not thinking straight, they're forgetting some words here and there, it, 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 is, it, it may not point right away to looking for something like this. Yes, I think it's important, as, as some of our listeners understand what we refer to in some of our podcasts, the pretest probability or the likelihood of a disease being present increases the likelihood that a test result is going to be positive. So we have to really test people in the right clinical situation. And uh, certainly a history of a concussion is that right clinical situation yeah. to think about growth hormone deficiency. Do you recommend or advocate testing of all patients who've survived head trauma or just a certain select few? That's, How, what, what's your... That's a great, no, it's a great question because a lot of people have had especially if you think about mild concussions and there's, there's less evidence about repetitive sports uh, um, mm -hmm. trauma, repetitive sports hits, not necessarily reach level concussion, but, but, uh, but that, that may, that 
that may be included also. So there's so many people who've had that, that it, it doesn't seem really feasible to test everybody. There's been a lot of interest in determining how can you predict who's going to have a pituitary deficiency? Um, you know, people have looked at, can you look at the level of severity? Is it only people with, you had mentioned, you know, just the like basal skull fractures. Is it only people who've been, um, had to have an ICU stay because it was such a severe concussion? And, and really people with mild concussions can have deficiencies too. So on an individual basis, that that's not predictive. Um, there's been attempts to look at different um, imaging characteristics, and that's not a uh, that's not a good clinical predictor. You can you, you can miss people looking that way too, or or different biomarkers in the blood. So really, what we have is symptoms. So that's what I go by. You know, it, it's it's it comes out of clinical judgment and kind of a a feel as well. But somebody who has the proper history, very important as you mentioned, mm-hmm. and then has symptoms that suggest there might be pituitary deficiencies underlying some of the symptoms. That's that's when when I test them. Um, I'm curious about what you use also, actually. Well, the same thing. But one of the things that I've learned is that you can't really often discern which symptoms are related to brain injury and which symptoms are related to growth hormone deficiency. So I tend to, I mean, I teach the the uh, Center for Neuroskills that sends a lot of patients to me. And we have yeah. a neurologist at our, in our practice who's very interested in this uh, condition. He sends a lot of people. But I teach them anybody that you're concerned about either do the stimulation test or send them to me for a stimulation test. Yep. And uh, I've tested people who had minimal to no symptoms of growth hormone deficiency, but a lot of what I thought was brain injury found them deficient, treated them and they got better. Yeah. Uh, so I think that you can't often tell. And sometimes you have to just do the test, treat the patient and see what happens. Not everybody gets better. Some of them have brain trauma that, that is leading to their symptoms and signs. And there's nothing that we can do about that. But uh uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, I've sort of resigned myself to, I have to test the people that are sent to me yeah. and, uh, and just do it. You, you know, what you say raises two things. One is there, there was, um, you were talking about the, the, you know, the, the variety and the symptoms. One of my favorite papers, it was questions colleagues published in, I think 2015, 2016, where the symptoms of hypogonadism, things you would think would be due to low testosterone, um, you know, erectile dysfunction, loss of libido, or that you would think would be low estrogen, like irregular menses, they did have higher rates of, of low testosterone, low estrogen, but also much higher rates of low growth hormone. And I've certainly seen that in patients too, where you think it's one thing, they don't have that as an issue or it's been replaced and it's growth hormone deficiency, and then the replacement can help. Um, and, and then the other thing is that I, you know, I take it very seriously too, when people come in, you want to offer hope, but there's, I, I am so conscious of the fact that if there's a possibility of something where you can intervene, that it might not help. It's really important to discuss that from the beginning. You know, if there's deficiency, you know, and there are symptoms related to the deficiency, those symptoms might in fact not be from the deficiency. You don't know until you replace how much was from the deficiency, because of course the traumatic brain injury itself could be playing a role in other ways. And just to make sure that's discussed and thinking about other things at the same time so that it's, it, I'm just really, it feels like such a responsibility. You want to help, but you don't want to cause this tremendous disappointment if you're not clear from the beginning. Yeah, we really certainly have to take a balanced approach in, in these patients uh, because they really do come to you with a lot of hope Yeah, uh, that maybe you can fix what's ailing me and, and help my doctor get me back to health and back to work. Yeah. So that's very point, points very well taken. So how do you, uh, so if you have a patient who you think has growth hormone deficiency, history of head trauma, What's your approach to diagnostic testing? What are your favorite stimulation tests? How do you interpret them? Uh, how do you how do you proceed with that workup, if you will? Yeah, I start um, and explain all this to to everyone, all of the patients as well. I start with a, a general screen for other pituitary issues. So the pituitary doesn't only make growth, growth hormone. Um, but uh, cortisol, so-called stress hormone, um, doesn't just go up when you're stressed, but essential. It's supporting the body at times of stress. Um, it it makes the stimulation hormone that makes the thyroid make thyroid hormones. So it's responsible for thyroid hormone. Um, and then is also in the same way responsible for the production of testosterone or estrogen. So all of those need to be checked first to make sure that they are in the range they should be in. Um, and if they're not, I replace them in the order I listed them first. Wait till they're stable, mm-hmm. test again. So it can be a longer process if there are other deficiencies. And only then do I... Uh, look for growth hormone deficiency. On that early screen, I will also check an IGF-1 only because if it's low, it can be helpful or high, it can be helpful. But if it's normal and there are those symptoms, I do go on to 
the uh, provocative testing. Um, you know, there are a number of different tests you can use. Growth hormone gets stimulated by the uh, lowering of glucose, for example. So for a long time, insulin tolerance tests were used. They're still used in some places, but many places choose not to do them for outpatients due to uh, concerns about that, that sharp lowering of blood pressure. So you can lower it more gently with glucagon. That's another validated guidelines approved test. Um, and there's a newer agent that's just been at it for uh, a number of years now, um, massimorelin that can be taken orally and also in a different way causes stimulation of growth hormone. Um, I tend to use glucagon stimulation tests because um, they're more available to more of my patients that I see in a wider geographical range. If they had the option for, for massimorelin, for macrolin, that would be great also, but, but I most often end up uh, with glucagon stimulation testing. Yeah, same here. I, I've never done a massimorelin stimulation test largely because our institution is not willing to store all these boxes to uh, and rightfully so, you know, we do our testing in the infusion center at the cancer yeah. center and they don't have space for all these growth hormone stimulation test kits, but glucagon is very small bottle relative to the, uh, to the, to the kit with the massimorelin. So we've really focused on that. Massimorelin is a great stimulus though. It, uh, it's a reasonable test. Yeah. Um, if, if you have access to it, I think it's great. It, there, there may yeah. be access issues. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, uh, most of our patients hear about cutoffs. Um, I have an, probably an interesting take on cutoffs compared to most people. If you do enough of these tests and people who prove to be normal, you see many people go to 10 or 20 with their growth hormone levels. Uh, and we used to use a cutoff of five at our institution, uh, that if you were below five and had definite pituitary disease or head trauma, you were probably abnormal. And I think that was a in reference to maybe an older GHSA, but also more historical data. And then uh, a lot of things have been published, and we've been using the cutoff of three for the glucagon stimulation test uh, in our practice. Yeah, five, I, th I think, is what's still used for the insulin tolerance test, although I have yeah, not exactly. done one of those in, but, uh, in years. But the um, yeah, so I use a cutoff of three. I do take into account, you know, there's, there's some suggestion that if patients have a higher BMI, um, meaning that they're... Uh, overweight to a certain degree, or if they um, have diabetes type 2 or another metabolic condition, that because that can impact growth hormone, that you want to use even a lower cutoff because you don't want to overdiagnose. I, I, I will say that, and, and that would be a cutoff of, of one. Um, I think that's relative to your ingoing probability also, right? So if you, right. if you have a patient, you're really not sure, and they have a high BMI or diabetes, and it's, and it's, more than one, but less than three, that's a different situation than a patient who really sounds like they have growth hormone deficiency, has every symptom, had a head injury or had a, you know, radiation to the pituitary and you get something in that, in that range, then it's worth, maybe worth a, a conversation about, let's see if it helps you. We're going to give it this many months and, and see how you're feeling. And mm -hmm. obviously you, I would, well, I should say, obviously I always follow more objective markers too, but what I'm really looking for is after at least it takes a while, slow moving, right? Like a big, slow moving boat. So yes. six months is the patient exactly. noticing any difference. You can't look after a month and notice a difference. You, you, you shouldn't probably exactly. see anything. But. Yeah. Yeah. I, I approach it the same way. I look at that uh, for overweight patients between one and three. I, if they have known pituitary disease, I consider the pretest probability higher. And especially if they're missing other hormones, uh, I, I tend to favor treating those people with growth hormone. Yeah. Now I've seen, and I'm sure as you have too, people with a concussion and minimal symptoms who are overweight and had a level less than one, and they had you know, gonadotropins that were elevated after menopause, for example, I'm usually not going to treat that patient uh, if they're between one and three, but uh, exactly. if they're, if their gonadotropins are low after menopause and they're not an estrogen, that's a sign there's another deficit. So it really does take a good history and physical and an assessment of all the information available and making a decision about who really has growth hormone deficiency with these uh, patients who are overweight or other patients who have borderline test results as well. It's interesting. I actually, I was about to say, so I, um, I have been asked before why I order, um, FSH levels on women who are known or thought, I should say, to be postmenopausal, because depending on their age, it could be due to pituitary deficiency if they've stopped getting their period. Um, uh, because generally speaking, that might not be done otherwise, but it's exactly for the reason you mentioned. So FSH is made by the pituitary and stimulates the ovaries to make estrogen. 
in menopause, the, S, the ovaries stop making as much estrogen, so FSH goes up. If the FSH is not up and the, and the estrogen's low, the, if the FSH looks normal, that's pituitary or hypothalamic pituitary disease. So that would increase my likelihood of thinking there is, is also, say, growth hormone deficiency. So I do test it in everybody who's not on um, oral contraceptives or something. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I remember back in my training when I was learning about the, the pituitary and how it was composed and put together and the the, uh, the the reserve of the different cell types in the gland, I, I read something somewhere and I was taught by my professor at Hopkins that uh, there's a hierarchy of loss of pituitary functions and that you would lose growth hormone first and gonadotropin second and then uh, thyrotrophs and corticotrophs. And I didn't believe it. I thought it was BS to use a term politely, uh, but that's what I've seen in my practice, so, you know, so I love it doesn't always hold true, no. but it is fairly well true. Most of the time. I love that you brought this up because I was also taught that, but that's not what I saw in my pituitary tumor patients. It didn't feel like it was largely mm -hmm. growth hormone followed by other things. It felt like there, that, that was not what I was always seeing in patients about a pituitary tumor or pituitary surgery. Um, but I have found that to be true in the TBI patients um, also. Mm -hmm. um, so all of a sudden yeah. that early trend, you like, oh, there you go. Yeah, you can almost bet that if they're hypogonadal, as you were talking about earlier, or an elderly woman with an L a normal FSH when it should be high and they're not on estrogen supplementation, that they probably are growth hormone deficient. Yeah. So that, that rule holds true more than I ever expected it to. But I still see a lot of exceptions to that rule every every week uh, but it's an sure. interesting one i don't know where that teaching first came from i i uh, i don't either I, I always thought it was because the of the location and number of the cells that the growth yeah that's the, the yeah that's the translation to anatomy to function and clinical medicine but i don't know if there was a study or whether someone just had that notion and guessed that might be the case i'm not sure i'll, see, no, I'll have to yeah, go look that up after we after we speak, yeah. I don't know. Interesting thought, but uh, yeah, but the point is this FSH in, in women can be very useful uh, and uh, it can often be one of those additional things that points to the fact that the patient might really truly be deficient and needs a stimulation test. Yeah, it hasn't happened that often, but I have seen it quite a few women who are young in their 40s um, or even one patient in her 30s who was just told she must have gone through menopause and mm -hmm. no one tested or, or re replaced um, and, uh, or, or, you know, look for pituitary deficiencies and it was in their pituitary issues. So it's, it's, it's not that common, but I remember every one of them. Yeah. That's fascinating. So what, uh, what about treatment? Uh, what's your approach to therapy? There are a number of different approaches, sort of weight-based, uh, dosing, start low and go up slow to find the least amount necessary, Pick a dose that you think the patient might end up on first. How do you do it? Specifically for growth hormone, you mean? For growth hormone replacement? Yes, right. Um, so I, I, we used to use weight-based, um, and for trials we use weight-based. I don't, I, I look at the weight, but I, it, it's more of a, I think this is the range they'll need, and then I like to start at the lowest possible one, but I definitely do that. I, I have found that I, I have, with that approach, I have not had patients who have carpal tunnel sy symptoms <clears throat> or symptoms that may be due to like fluid retention and so that's why I like that. I, I want to try to avoid any side effects. So I start low and then I just go up as uh, based on how they're doing and based on their IGF-1 level. So that's something that I find curious what you think. It's so interesting. I'm saying, well, you know, you can have a normal IGF-1 level and still fill growth hormone testing. You can have a peak growth hormone, you know, certainly even less than one. And so you start replacing and then you're monitoring with IGF-1 because that's what we have. Um, Right. Just make sure it doesn't go above the normal range. But uh, but so that's what I do. I do I do follow IGF one and I and I follow the the symptoms both uh, initially not looking for efficacy, just looking for making sure there's nothing suggesting it's going anywhere mm -hmm. close to too high. Yeah, I do it the same. I've I learned through uh, early research before growth hormone was approved, participating in clinical trials that when it was weight-based, that you could tell who was on treatment because they all looked a little acromegaloid after after a period of time. Oh. Fluid retention, carpal tunnel mm -hmm. syndrome, their face got, you know, sort of swollen and things like that because the weight-based calculations were giving people high doses. And as I remember, uh, I was at a meeting somewhere in Europe and, and the, one of the one of the European investigators says, we Americans do it all wrong. We've long ago learned that you... 
you have to use lower doses and step it up. Uh, these weight-based calculations are too much. But some people in America still use them. Yes, and you'll still see uh, sort of a difference yeah. in the in some of the literature also. But um, no, and I also take into account if a woman is um, has estrogen present for whatever reason or not, because you may need a little yeah. bit more if that's the case. Yeah, that's a fascinating uh, uh, observation that estrogen seemed to inhibit IGF-1 generation by the liver so much that I have a patient with acromegaly who is, who's pregnant and she's been off of her uh, somatuline and her cabergoline, which were necessary to try to get her IGF-1 to normal. And we could only get it from 1,000 to 800. Wow. Uh, and then she got pregnant. She's now been off therapy and her IGF-1's... 367 or so. So she's almost normal. Oh my goodness. Her age, uh, just due to the estrogens of pregnancy inhibiting IGF-1. So it's a real phenomenon. That's amazing. Uh, to, to see that. Yeah. It's interesting stuff. It'll be interesting to see uh, what happens after, after delivery over time. Uh, they usually go way back yeah. up again. So I have to go back on treatment, but uh, she has invasive disease and, oh. and uh, it was in the process of trying to work towards getting her controlled so we could decide on long-term management. And, uh, and she was just so sick. Oh yeah. For that uh, high. And, and then, and then got pregnant, you know, probably due to the cabergoline lowering her prolactin would be my guess, but, uh, it's kind of an interesting case. Does, uh, do you tend to, um, find that the need for a treatment for, um, not well-controlled acromegaly occurs immediately after delivery in patients like no, it's not immediate. It's probably the four to six weeks out. Okay. You start seeing a, a requirement for therapy. Uh, in my experience, it's probably three quarters of my patients with acromegaly can withdraw medical therapy and they'll have normal IGF-1s. I've had a couple of people I've had to continue therapy through their through their pregnancy uh, and you know put them on. Uh, I, I think some of it doesn't cross the placenta uh, and the somatostatin analogs are are fine to use as well. The big concern is that they may cause low birth weight uh, in the kids, but they don't really seem to cause any of them any birth defects or anything like that. So uh, I'll get people back on whatever treatment I feel like they need yeah. in that setting. Amazing. So when it comes to uh, long-term follow-up, you mentioned before that you have hard parameters that you follow in addition to symptom signs. What's your approach to follow-up as far as what additional tests do you do? For patients for with patients? growth hormone deficiency? Right. Um, so I will always check. Uh, the reasons I check things are partly for my clinic, you know, clinically to see if they're improving. And then also it can be helpful. Some of them, as I tell the patients, and I'll explain which ones can be helpful for insurance also, right? to, to mm -hmm. demonstrate yeah. that there's an effect. But clinically speaking, there's um, I check cholesterol, see if that improves after a year on growth hormone. Um, I uh, offer bone density with, uh, with recommendations varying based on how, how long and when, how long ago and when it seems like the growth hormone deficiency likely showed up, like when was the, the injury, for example. That's certainly something that can be, can be checked. Some patients... Um, have been worried about it. So it's not that I won't start growth hormone if they don't want to get bone density testing. I don't, and, and, and not for a reason. It's not, you know, it's, it's, I should say not mm -hmm. for a reason. I don't think that there's a harm to getting bone density testing. If somebody doesn't want to, they're far from it. It's not a requirement for me. This is a much better way to put it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, uh, but that can be useful. Um, and uh, I always monitor over time and I check quality of life testing. So I do some, I do, uh, there, there's some, validated questionnaires that, that give a measurement on quality of life. They're not as useful as just talking to a patient, but it does put a number on things. And that can be, that was the one that I mentioned can be useful. Also if an objective measure is required for other reasons at, at any time. And mm -hmm. uh, we used to use those for research. So there are two of those that I'll, I'll measure before growth hormone is started. Um, and then um, throughout uh, growth, throughout the growth hormone replacement, I'm always checking the IGF-1. I'll early on check the thyroid hormones and the cortisol again to make sure the replacement didn't um, change the metabolism of what was just enough and not showing up as a deficiency um, in any way. I've never seen that happen, but, but I do check that um, early on. And then I also, because we know that over time after traumatic brain injury, um, deficiencies can improve, they can stay the same or new ones can show up. Depending on how long it's been since the injury, I will often do repeat pituitary hormone checks. You know, a year later. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What? Yeah, very good. What's your What's your 
Uh, same. So if I usually ask them not to send patients to me until they've been two years out, you know, just because I, there's a lot of data that suggests that you can have dysfunction at a year yeah. and be normal by two years, even with growth hormone deficiency. And, and I tell my patients if they happen to make it to me and they're not two years out that let's just wait and see what happens uh, with regards to the growth hormone rather than treat you right away. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I've had a couple people convince me to treat, treat sooner and then withdraw later because they want to try to feel better at, uh, at an earlier stage and maybe to help with the rehabilitation and, and uh, their exercise program through rehabilitation and things like that. But I usually like to wait about two years because I don't want to commit someone to therapy uh, and, and go through the process of withdrawing and retesting and, you know, unfortunately, many of these cases and injuries caused by another person or entity or workplace so that uh, there there are legal ramifications to uh, this whole situation where people are evaluated different time points. And I think it's fair to all sides to make sure that someone really has a deficiency before we start treatment. That's it. That's really interesting. I've noticed that there's a difference in, in time to start. So I have, you know, I have told patients that are earlier than that, if, the, if they seem to have symptoms that are really distressing them that might be due to growth hormone deficiency and they're found to have deficiency. I've started replacement, but I do say that, you know, after, after one year on what looks to be the appropriate dose. So that might not be a year. Mm -hmm. That might be a year and six months or a year and three months that I, sure. I then want to retest. So that's the caveat for if you start sooner, certainly sooner than a year that it, it would be important to retest because you can also start to see that I would amend the IGF-1 level change and that they don't need as much growth mm -hmm. hormone. So you can kind of follow that, but, but to do a retest over time so that you don't commit someone to lifelong medication yeah. when, when they don't need it. Um, but it's, it's, I, I would warrant that that probably also increases the likelihood that of those patients you see who have symptoms and tests, you probably get a higher percent that actually have growth hormone deficiency than looking earlier. I think so too. Yeah. Uh, certainly the ones who my practice would be more enriched, so to speak, Exactly. as a result of that. And, uh, you know, it, it, and to do that is basically because I didn't want to do all the extra work. We have, we have a lot of patients and the office staff are over overburdened as it is. And to do all the extra work of starting and stopping and retesting, it's, uh, it's almost untenable if, uh, in our workplace well, to try to get all that and, taken care of. And that's really a shame, too, that even just getting the diagnostic testing, because I am seeing patients by telemedicine, they're spread, you know, in, in, in many different, in a number of different states and many different counties and finding places that do, like, glucagon stimulation testing on a regular basis and do it reliably. And, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not going to just, that's actually quite a lot of work also. Um, sure. Uh, let alone then the point of sort of getting the growth hormone re replacement itself. Um, yeah, no, I yeah, think that I requires think... a lot of, a lot of trail bossing in that uh, setting to, to do the authorizations and the appeals and things like that. Uh, yeah. I, I have not been looking that late, but I can see it. it would, I completely understand why that, why that makes sense. It would be nice to have more data on the degree to which growth hormone replacement in patients with deficiency and at different times uh, the extent to which mm -hmm. that replacement helps other types of rehabilitation from the injury. Um, I, I think that's been done with testosterone deficiency, but I don't know how much has been done with growth hormone after TBI. Um, and helping yeah, I'm not sure either. It's theoretically, it should, it should help. assist, right? right? It so should help. You know, just build, build muscle mass and things like that. Yep, exactly. So let me ask you this question. What do you do if a patient with TBI, I have several people like this, you, you diagnose them, their IGF-1 levels are frankly low. They don't stimulate, you treat them, and then they have no improvement whatsoever. So do you continue treatment for the benefits that we know that are metabolic, that are behind the scenes, or are you treating for symptoms only? Would you stop therapy if they didn't improve? That's a great question. And let's say even that this is a patient where they may even have other pituitary deficiencies, like you truly, mm -hmm. that this is a patient who is growth hormone deficient and is not responding to replacement. It depends how long. So I have heard, I have, I have generally, if there's improvement, seen it within a year, not always at six months, but within a year, the symptomatic improvement and, and usually by, by six months. But, you know, others have said, well, sometimes it takes more than a year and not until you get to two years. And, and so that's where I start to wonder. And it's more of a discussion with the patient because they have to want to stay on it. But I also am clear about the metabolic benefits and that's why it could be helpful 
It's helpful to measure the cholesterol level. It's helpful if you are getting bone density. If you happen to have somebody who had low bone density and then it improves on it, that's that's evidence um, uh, that that it's it that suggests that growth hormone is helping the bone in the way that we know that it it does do. Um, I'm curious if you check bone density and also the one thing I I have not been able to check clinically, but we always checked um, in research studies and I've heard from pediatric endocrine colleagues that they are able to check on their pediatric growth hormone deficient patients is body composition. And you can do that with, you know, DEXA or CT scan. And so that's not something that I order because it's, I don't think it would be um, approved, but you know, that would be a nice, a nice piece of information to share with the patient who's making a decision with you about whether or not to, to continue. Yeah, I, I do DEXA scans in a number of patients, not everybody, uh, but I've never ordered a body composition, even though there's significant clinical evidence that uh, body composition does change. You burn fat and build muscle. I remember attending a, a, a meeting in Europe long ago, and I think, I can't remember, maybe it's Ken Ho from Australia. I don't know if you ever yeah, met him. Yeah. Sort of the neuroendocrinologist mm-hmm. there. And uh, I think it was him, but it might have been somebody else. But someone showed in this conference where I know he was a speaker, uh, uh, a, a picture of a cow that had been treated with growth hormone and a cow that had not and the fat composition. Oh, uh, wow. Not to promote the fact that we should treat cattle with no, growth no, hormone no. to burn fat and to build muscle, but to show that this is a real a hormone that has real effects on body composition. And of course, we have a lot of studies in human beings about these same things with all the controversy over what's the best test for body composition having been discussed. But uh, it's interesting. It does, it does help. We uh, had um, a lot of our patients. Yeah. It was one of the things that we were looking at patients who used to have acromegaly, then went growth hormone deficient was, was one of the studies that was involved with that at mass general and mm-hmm. whether replacement was good for the patients who used to have too much, but now had too little. And body composition was right. one of the things that seemed to be very sensitive to that, that in quality of life. Um, and it was so, you know, it was I'm working on something to guidelines for sort of transition of growth hormone in patients after TBI um, transition, mm-hmm. meaning from adolescence to adulthood. And um, uh, without having asked him, if I can mention this, um, uh, Bradley Miller, who's a pediatric endocrinologist said that they, they, it, it is a matter of course, they get body composition studies in the children and adolescents um, at that time mm-hmm. period. Um, up through age 19. And I, I hope I'm not misquoting, I think is what he said. And I thought, well, that's so great. It was it's too bad we can't get those in adults too, because you really do want to look for evidence of is this helpful or not? Because if it's not helpful in a way that matters to that patient or that you feel is important to make that recommendation, then you know people don't need to stay on a medication where they're not noticing a difference mm-hmm. and there's nothing that is is you know likely to cont- improve their health over time. Yeah. There's always that lingering question, though. are you decreasing their mortality, their later morbidity for 20 years down the road. And, you know, so I tell, I tell patients it's really up to you, but in many cases I look at their data and their history and will recommend they continue it even though they don't feel better. Yeah. Uh, but um, it's a tough decision. How about the elderly person with uh, growth hormone deficiency due to whatever cause? Oh, do you have an age cutoff? I don't have an uh, age have you... cutoff. Okay. I don't have an age cutoff, but it is tricky because you don't really know what, I think that the ranges that are established for normal are probably less good in different different ages, you know? Uh, sorry, are, are less, I think that they might be less, less reliable past a certain age. Um, but no, I, I don't have an age cutoff. I don't know. I don't know if I should. I'm really inter- I got really interested for a while. Of, if you just look at even IGF one levels, not deficiency, does that track with different um, aspects of cognition? Mm-hmm. You know, we know that growth hormone deficiency mm-hmm. affects executive function and different types of cognition. Um, and so, I don't have an age cutoff. Um, do you have an age cutoff for for the deficiency? I, d- yeah. I don't. I don't. Yeah. I, ha- I have a patient who's almost 97 on growth hormone. Yeah. Uh, she was frail and and failing to thrive with hypopituitarism at age 84 when I first started to see her, and she was on perfect hormone replacement. Just was a not getting the life that she wanted as an 84 year old woman. She was a retired nun and was a fireball and you know very active in in the community. And uh, I tested her and treated her with growth hormone. It was like rocket fuel for her yeah. for for her life, I, and she's still on treatment. I, I think and, it, especially uh, if, if it can help affect um, mood and cognition and energy that um, I would not want to 
withhold that from people just because they're a certain age. Yeah, it really brought her along for her 85th birthday. She parachuted out of an airplane. And then I think the 87th, she was ziplining zip in the Sierra Nevada mountains you can uh, have... and blimp riding and things like yeah. that. And and uh, got a couple of speeding tickets. And I thought for a while I'd created a monster. <laughs> but she, she literally went from uh, spending time only at home to then working in an old folks home uh, providing care. So uh, it really changed her life dramatically. So I, I think there is a, a potential benefit for a growth hormone at all ages, whether it's head trauma or some other cause. Yeah, no, that's really, it's helpful, I think, to that you can share anecdotes like that, too, because I would hate for people to feel like that it's not, you know, they're not eligible, or it's not relevant, it shouldn't be given for, for, mm-hmm. for just that reason. Well, I have encountered patients who've told me that their physicians told them they were too old for growth hormone. And, I've, yeah, uh, so. or, or patients who are who are worried that it might increase cancer risk, right? There's not evidence other than if you have colon polyps, perhaps. Um, Yeah, exactly. um, I actually had a patient who had had a a meningioma removed and was, and had had radiation and there was no sign of the meningioma. And she was um, very growth hormone deficient. She was deficient in everything actually. And it was extremely symptomatic to a way that was really upsetting her, but there was some concern about giving someone with a history of meningioma growth hormone. And so I actually went so far as to get some of the tissue and say, just test it for growth hormone receptors, if that's your concern, because she's so clearly suffering and we don't know that it would be a problem to, to Mm -hmm. restart it. But, um, but just to, just to get the to data to kind of uh, make everyone comfortable with with replacing it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, I wanted to conclude by asking if you had anything else you wanted to share about your thoughts of pituitary deficiency, and we really focus more on growth hormone. But anything else you want to share about pituitary deficiency and head trauma patients? I'm just glad that there are there's more attention being paid to this. I think that the issue I get asked all the time, you know, why don't people know about this? And I don't think it's that the data is not there. I mean, you can always use more data and sort of more rigorous data. When you look at the studies, people do use different cutoffs or they use different tests, but you, you just look for that. But there's plenty of data for the increased risk of pituitary deficiency. They think the issue has just been awareness. Um, awareness and the fact that it can be a little bit tricky to get to these tests or to get the approval for medications and that that can also be a little bit of a barrier. So um, I think that this type of program and education awareness are really important. There is less evidence, but some evidence that other types of brain injury also increase the risk for pituitary deficiencies. But it's kind of much more of, I think, a caveat mTOR kind of situation, like the, the, the data really isn't there as much. But for certain specific types of strokes, there's some studies in an increasing body of literature um, uh, and again, not a lot of awareness, but not as much data as there is after traumatic brain injury. Um, and I'm curious to get out there the, the long hauler uh, data. I don't know what it will show, but I have my suspicions, obviously. So, Yeah, I look forward to seeing that as well. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned that with Jorge, and I, I thought, this is new to me. I'm very curious as to what we're going to find there. Yeah, I have seen in um, you know patients who, who have no history of concussion, right? Because otherwise you would think it might be due to that, and who have... Mm-hmm. symptoms identical to patients who have pituitary, de- really growth hormone deficiency after concussion and then have growth hormone deficiency. So I've, I've been seeing that there was one study that came out that also reported that they didn't do, and they, and they used a one cut, a cutoff of, of 1.07 on the glucagon simulation test. Erhan mm-hmm. was the name of the lead author. It came out this year um, mm-hmm. in, you know, quite striking percent that they found growth hormone deficiency, but, but didn't replace. So, um, so we're doing replacement to see if it has an impact. That's the question. They, these are patients who are deficient, who have mm-hmm. long hauler symptoms, you know, brain, brain fog fatigue or you know, organizational mm-hmm. difficulties, had diagnosed COVID, but no concussion. And so the, the question is, does it improve with growth hormone? Because it'd be exciting to find out. Certainly a question to answer, and we may find ourselves with clinics full of people well, who have a need for growth hormone deficiency in the future, and I'm ready to see them. Yes. You know, I, like, I like treating people with growth hormone because it changes their life dramatically in most cases, you know, if they have deficiency. Do you find do you uh, f- that and, people uh, get a little bit um, impatient once it's been a few months if they don't notice a difference? You know, some patients notice a difference in two or three months, but others I have found don't. Yeah. 
I think patients get impatient because they don't want to take the injection. They don't want to do the routine. Uh, that's the main thing I've seen uh, if they don't feel any better. But curiously, and you may have seen this too, and I think it's because, well, two things. One, people who have a recent onset of growth hormone deficiency, say pituitary tumor of surgery, whatever, pituitary apoplexy, they might get started on treatment before they develop the full syndrome of growth hormone deficiency. So they're not going to feel any better. Yeah. All they know is they have to take this injection. Uh, the other the other group are the people that benefit very slowly from treatment, and they may not feel any better. And both of these groups, when they stop growth hormone replacement, they six months later they're back in the office. Hey, I think I need that stuff. Yeah, and that's and not a bad test either, right? Like that's you not a know. bad thing. You, you do yeah. the experiment. Do the growth hormone withdrawal and see what happens. Yeah. Uh, and I think the same has been proven in the children, say with craniopharyngioma or other pituitary disorders are treated in childhood until they finish long bone growth and close their epiphyses, oh, they stop, stop. treatment. I, you know, 20% gain weight in the in the first couple of years, 20% gain in fat mass. Uh, they stop accreting bone. And when they're in college or through college, they're back in an endocrinologist's yeah. office. Hey, they, they feel depressed. They don't, they, their yeah. thinking changes. No, I think that's really well worth mentioning too, that it's not just for height, right? That's a, a growth yeah, hormone is not exactly. just for, for growth of your long bones. I don't know if you ever met Barbara Lippi, but uh, she was a pediatric endocrinologist. And I can't. I think she was one of the California institutions, and then worked in industry. Okay. And she she used to show these presentations when she was talking about growth. She says, "This pediatric endocrinologist is right in front of us." You know, she said all of our kids that came to us for growth hormone deficiency were overweight, and we treated them and we measured their height. And she'd show these pictures of her children as they were growing, and she'd say, "Look at their body composition over mm-hmm. time." And uh, she says, we didn't recognize it until we started studying it uh, for, for decades, you know, when they were using the uh, cadaver uh, att- obtained growth hormone. And it really wasn't recognized until they had a recombinant growth hormone available to treat large numbers of patients. So it's it's interesting. We're always learning something new. We just have to be paying attention enough to learn it, right? Exactly, right? It's an so, attention and, and starting to yeah. kind of put pieces together as you see them. Yeah. Well, I certainly appreciate you joining us today. It's been a fascinating discussion. Uh, and, and as usual, I enjoy talking with you and picking your brain about things. So thank you very much. No, thank you. I got to got to learn things I wanted to know about how you how you practice with this, too. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a non-profit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.